I want to take you back uh, to junior high Craig for a minute. I know this is scary enough, junior high Craig. It was even worse. Um, Bart Simpson shirt, Cooler Jets man, flat top. At a week of summer camp, uh, show up and, and just, can we be honest, junior high is just awkward, Right? And so we show up at this week of summer camp, and we're all trying to figure things out, like where do we pick our nose in private, like all those important things that junior high kids are trying to figure out. And, and we're there, and they divide us into groups. And, and now, for those of us that aren't quite as extroverted as some of you, it gets even more awkward, because now we're trying to figure out how to make and form relationships with these people that, that we've never met before. And, and, and there's mixed groups, so you've got girls in your group, and, and it's just crazy. And the leader tells us that he wants us to develop these, these deep relationships with those people that are in these smaller groups. There's six, seven, or eight of us awkward junior high kids, and they, they send us off with, with two adult leaders we've never met before, and they start telling us how important it is to trust one another. And here we are, we've driven in the car like three hours, and I'm like, how are we supposed to trust each other? They're like, well, we have trust-building exercises. Thank you for that. And so we, uh, we, we get together and they start describing this one exercise they call it a trust fall. And so the leader explains, uh, one by one, you're going to step up onto this picnic table, you know, three, four feet off the ground. You're going to shuffle to the edge. Uh, the rest of your friends, like I don't even know them, are going to be, be behind you. They're going to interlock arms. We'll be there too. And on the count of three, you're going to close your eyes, put your arms over your chest, lock your legs, and just fall straight backward and trust that we're going to catch you. What? Like, like, these are kids that can't even figure out how to dress, and they're going to be catching me. And so, but, but trust, trust is so important. We can't have these deep relationships unless we trust each other. And so what happened? One by one, we each climbed up on the picnic table, scooted back to the edge. If I did that today, the, the picnic table would come up, right? But at 110 pounds, it was okay. And so um, standing on the edge of the picnic table, they count to three, each one of us, arms across our chest, some of us with more apprehension than others, close our eyes, and we fall backwards, and they catch us. And you know what? The leaders were right. Like, once people save your life, like, you trust them more, and relationships kind of take off. You can date every girl in camp. Like, you figured it out at that point. Trust is so important to relationships. But if you don't know what a trust fall is, I wanted to show you this video. Yeah, that did not go well. Um, that leader left out a very important instruction, didn't he? Got to fall backwards. Um, man, I had, a, I had a friend in our church that sent that to me a couple weeks ago, and I just laughed out loud, and uh, I, I just couldn't stop. Because I, 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 what I think is happening, just judging by the picture, I, I think that's probably a, a church staff somewhere, and they just hired this new guy, and he's going to be working in the church, and, and they're like, hey, let's just build trust. Let's get these relationships going. And so this staff surrounds him, and he ends up face planning uh, as, as a result. 
I'm guessing that uh, trust was built a little more slowly uh, in, in that group. But we know trust is important, right? Trust is important. It's critical to relationships. I don't have to tell you that. Uh, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you have said that to your own children, probably when they were just about this size. Um, we talked about the importance of telling the truth, uh, not stealing, not being deceptive. Why? Because we know that a lack of trust can erode uh, the intimacy, the, the strength of a relationship. And, and parents, while we want that for our kids, grandparents, we want that for our grandchildren, uh, let, let's, let's be, just be honest for a moment. Our children and grandchildren need that in us. When, when we make promises to them, uh, when we tell them that something is real, um, if, if our actions don't match our words, then that can damage the relationship just as much as trust begins to dissipate. You know what it's like in the closest relationships in your life, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, fiance, the fiance, like you need trust. With, without trust, what happens? The, the strength of your relationship is dramatically affected. The workplace, same thing, right? If, if you as an employer uh, don't think you can trust an employee, what's the likelihood your corporation or your business is going to be strong? Uh, if that's the, the norm in your company, probably it's not going to be a very strong company. If as an employee, you can't trust that your employer cares about you and wants to help you, when, when, when trust erodes, like the relationship, man, it just begins to crumble. It's why politicians spend so much money uh, going door to door and holding uh, town hall meetings because they hope that in some way you start to trust them. So that relationship is built. Trust is so important to relationships. Should it surprise us then that trust is extremely important when it comes to our relationship with God? I'm not sure how often we think of it in those terms, but, but what happens uh, to our relationship with God, if we feel as though we can't trust him, that, that he doesn't have our best interests at heart, that he is not for us, what, what happens then? What happens when we feel like in life, we've had those moments when we crossed our arms and we closed our eyes and we fell and he didn't catch us like we thought he should? Here's what happens in my life. I don't know if it happens in yours is that doubt starts to creep in more and more. And the more I doubt that God cares about me, the more I doubt that God is for me, the more I doubt his character and who I've been told that he is, guess what also becomes easier? Compromise. Because if, if, if I doubt God, if God's not really for me, if I don't really trust him, then then, then why am I going to trust something that he says in his word that's really hard for me to understand? And so as trust dissipates, the relationship is damaged. And where do we go from there? We need a strong word. Uh, we need someone who will step in and will speak and will remind us of who God really is and help us see clearly when we're having so much trouble uh, seeing 
uh, that God is at work among us. And that's what brings us to Malachi. Our, our series that we're launching today is called Trust Me, From Doubt to Devotion. Why Malachi? Uh, why go back to a prophecy given through a man in the 5th century of B.C.? Like, we're, we're, we're talking probably mid-5th century B.C., probably somewhere between 480 and 450 B.C. This man named Malachi is proclaiming this message of God. Why go there? Uh, you're going to find that there's some startling significance Uh, to what Malachi shares in his day. He speaks to a people who were also struggling to trust God. They come with a whole list of reasons where they had these expectations for how God should act, what a good God does, what a loving God does, what that looks like in their life. And they looked at their experience and they saw this evidence that they believed contradicted who they were told God was and who he would be. And I know that each of us uh, have had times in our life when we've been told that God is a loving God, that God is a good God, that God cares about us, that God wants to bless us, and we come up with our own ideas of what that blessing looks like, what that love should feel like, uh, what, what what our experience should be. And when our experience does not match those expectations, we begin to question, is God really for me? Um. My, my hope is that over the next six weeks, you come face to face with who God really is and that he is one who you can trust. I want you to hear God say at some point in this series, trust me. And I want that trust to, to draw you from your doubts to devotion. And understand, as we talk about doubts in this series, there is nothing wrong with having a doubt. Part of faith, trusting in what you cannot see, Trusting in what you hope for, but, but in some ways isn't yet. That's hard, and it comes with doubts. That's part of the territory. But how do we continue to move through those doubts and let those doubts, uh, not allow those doubts to disrupt that faith and that journey of experiencing God's very best for us as people made and formed in his image? Uh, Malachi uh, begins very simply. Uh, verse 1 uh, basically states what we're about to read and kind of gives us perspective. Malachi 1.1 simply reads a prophecy. Um, Maybe your Bible says an oracle, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Uh, A prophecy or an oracle, uh, when you look at the original Hebrew word, is a burden, It's a message that is a burden. It has this weight to it that the Spirit of God impresses upon the messenger this thing that just has to be said to a particular audience. And in many cases, when it comes to the Bible, it's it's the people of Israel. And so Malachi says, this is a burden. This is a message from God. This is where it originated. It carries all the weight and all the authority that the creator of the universe can bring with it. Like, like this is the weight. I, I have to say this. This comes from God. And it comes through Malachi. I, I just love, that's a subtle, I think, expression of humility. Malachi understands that, that it is not his words that are going to shape lives. It's God's words that will shape lives. He is just the messenger. And in fact, literally, Malachi means my messenger. Here's what a prophet is. A prophet is simply a mouthpiece 
Maybe you think of it as a megaphone, a bullhorn that God is speaking through. They have the weight impressed upon them by God's spirit. I, I have to share this message. The spirit leads them and proclaim this message from God to a people. If that's not clear enough, I, I want to read you how Peter speaks of it. Peter, a follower of Jesus, uh, you've probably uh, heard his name before. Um, maybe he's been in jokes about heaven. Uh, here is Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Above all, he writes, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture, no burdened message came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. That The prophet didn't look out and say, hey, let me give you my opinion on that. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Malachi tells us, these words come from him. I'm just the messenger. But when Israel hears these words, when the people of God hear these words, this is a message from God, a, a, a message, a burden on the prophet. They would have been, you know, just hardwired to say, okay, I got to tune in. God has something to say. There were, there's a respect for the prophet. My hope is that over the next six weeks, that God would continue to use this prophet's voice to call us from our doubts to devotion, that, that you would listen up um, to his words. So, wh why communicate to the people of God in this time? Here's a little history. We're talking mid-5th century B.C. What had happened? What was happening? Uh, the Israelites were just a few decades removed from what we call captivity or exile. Maybe you know this part of the story. Uh, if we track back to the very beginning of God's people, um, they're formed into a nation they're taken to Egypt during a famine. They're rescued from Egypt when they're enslaved by the Egyptians. God carries these grumbling people through the desert for 40 years. They come into the promised land. Uh, they struggle there. There's the time of judges. There's the time of the kings. Um, it appears early on during the reigns of Saul and David and even the early part of Solomon's reign that, that finally uh, these people of God, these Israelites are getting like, they're reflecting the glory of God. Like people are seeing Israel and like, oh, holy cow, there's something great going on there. But then something begins to erode and the people turn their backs on God and king after king does wicked in the eyes of the Lord and the people turn from God's authority and God's rule and God's purposes and pursue their own selfish ambitions. And so God raises up foreign armies to actually invade and to conquer the people of God. By that point, the people of God have divided into two kingdoms. They can't even get along with each other. You have the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, all the nation of Israel and the Assyrians come to the north around 722 B.C. They ransack uh, Samaria. Um, people are carted off. People are hurt. 586 B.C., the Babylonians come in. They take over Jerusalem. People are taken to captivity in Babylon. And they're there for a few decades until the Persians come to rule. And, and the Persians, on, under a, a, a good king, say, I'm going to let people go back to their homeland, trying to build allegiance and respect and so he permits the, the Jews to return uh, to what we would call Judah. Uh, a man named Haggai and a man named Zechariah prophesy during those early years of the return. 
They talk about rebuilding the temple. They, they talk about God's blessing coming upon the people as the temple is rebuilt and, and God will restore his glory. And there's a man named Zerubbabel and a lot of, you know, uh, excitement surrounding him. And it's like, okay, we're going to be restored. And then a couple more decades go by and while the temple is built, um, Judah's borders are still about 20 miles by 30 miles, just, just small compared to the greater glory they had um, a few centuries before. They have no great king, um, and yet they've been told stories of someone who will reign on David's throne. And in fact, they have the Persians give these like uh, state leaders to come and to oversee these, these people that have returned home, and some of them are incredibly corrupt. No military to defend themselves. And Malachi gets burdened with this message. Because here are a people whose expectations of God, their interpretation of what God's blessing would look like, does not match their experience. And so they're questioning if God even cares. Um, I don't think it's hard for you and I to understand how this relates to us, is it? Because we ask the very same questions. What you're going to see in Malachi, the structure of it is uh, basically, um, if you think of a courtroom, uh, God is defending his covenant with the people. Like this is his contract. These are the things God said he would do. And, and the people in their hearts are disputing that God cares about him. They, they have objections to how God has acted. And so God, in this uh, way that people in the ancient Near East would have grasped as foreign to us, actually um, responds to their accusations and their objections. The fancy word for this is called disputations. There's six of them in the book of Malachi. Uh, that's a big word, so just think of the first part of that word, disputes. There are six disputes that God addresses with the people. And I think you're going to find that over the next six weeks, there are disputes that you and I equally have with God. And I hope that as they come to trust, we come to trust. And so here's, here's the first dispute. Verses uh, two through five. Here's what verse two says. Just the first couple sentences. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, but you say, how have you loved us? God makes this declaration at the very beginning of, uh, of the prophecy. He wants Israel to know, I have loved you. Such a, such a simple collection of words with such profound implications. The creator of the universe is declaring to his people, I have loved you. It's in the perfect tense. It's a completed action. He's saying that, that I have always loved you. The term here is not a term of affection or endearment. It's a term of commitment and devotion. It's a covenant term. In, in Israel's other covenants, in Hebrew, they would have used the word ahav for this word love. I am devoted to you. God says, I am devoted to you. I have kept my covenant with you. I am committed to you. I have never turned away from you. I have always been for you and not against you. I have loved you. Such an incredible statement from God. An emphatic statement from God. But he knows what Israel's thinking. They're thinking, yeah, right. How? How 
of you loved us. They're questioning his love. They're questioning his commitment to them. His devotion to them. They're looking at their current circumstances and they're wondering, how on earth can God say that he has been committed to us? Well, what's interesting is we, we don't know if um, Israel voiced these things out loud, if they're sitting around the campfire at night and they're saying, yeah, you know, they talk about Moses and this God who loves us, but I don't believe it. We don't know if they're talking around the campfire saying those things out loud or if they're just thinking it. Um, it doesn't really matter. Here's what we know about God, whether it's Psalm 9411 or the words of Jesus. God knows our thoughts. That's scary, isn't it? And all of us at one time or another in our pride think that we can even hide the truth from him. But God knows everything that we think. And here is God saying, I am devoted to you. I have always loved you. And he knows what the people are thinking. I'm not so sure. Why would the people question God's devotion to them? Again, think back on the story that I shared. They have been promised, go back to the covenant with, with Abram, Genesis chapter 12. He says, I will bless the world through you to Abram, whose name later gets changed to Abraham. You will be a blessing to the, all nations on earth will be blessed through you. God promises him a child. He'll have offspring. And here's Abram uh, in the later years of his life, looking at his wrinkly old frame as Wrinkly old wife's frame thinking, yeah, <laughs> that's a good one, God. We're going to have a nation from us. Um, have you noticed we haven't had any kids yet and we're getting pretty old? And God says, no, there's a nation that's going to come through you. And so in her 90s, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. A child of blessing. And Isaac marries Rebecca later on in life. Rebecca gives birth to, to twin boys. And the blessing continues, and they've heard all these stories of God's blessing to them, how God will make them a great nation, how God will bless the world through them. All of these stories, they've heard of David, that they've heard of, of the victory over the Egyptians, and yet they look at their lives ruled by oppressors, no one to defend them, borders shrunk down to that of a city. And they wonder, really? God's devoted to us. The hardship, financial, physical, the affliction, it causes them to question if God is committed to them. What causes you and I to question God's commitment to us? It's the same things, right? Financial hardship, We're victimized by some sort of corruption. Um, we, we open up the friend request in Facebook and uh, now, now our lives are destroyed because someone's hacked our account. Uh, we respond to the phone call and uh, we don't want the IRS to hurt us so we give away all of our extremely personal information. Now someone has drained our bank account. We, we go to the doctor with what we think is just the stomach ache that won't go away, and we find out that uh, there's a tumor. Uh, we think life is, is going along so great, and then the phone rings, and someone that we love has tragically been killed. 
And what do we do? So we have this vision. We, we, we've heard people like me stand on platforms like this and tell us that God loves us and, and God blesses us and we create our own idea of what that blessing needs to be and what that love looks like. And when our experience does not match that expectation, we're like, how is God really for me? It's that age-old question, why do good things happen to bad people? And every one of us in this room, if we're honest, has asked that question. If we're even more honest, many of us in this room have asked that question this week, maybe even the last 24 hours. Is God really for me? Is God really devoted to me? Is God really committed to me? God loves me? How? Listen to his response to Israel. The end of verse 2. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, the Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, it's another name for Esau's offspring, Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. Well, those are some pleasant words. What does it mean? Why does God start talking about Esau and Jacob? How, how is that supposed to comfort his people? How, how, how does the talk of jackals turning their, their land into a wasteland, the wrath of God? Like, God himself says, Esau, I have hated. Is God allowed to say that? We don't let our kids say, I hate you. Is God allowed to say that? What's meant by all this? Well, again, let's go back to covenants, ancient Near East. Um, Malachi's written in mid-5th century BC. Covenants, treaties are common. The word love, just as much as it's a covenant expression of commitment, of devotion, the word hate is a term that appears often in covenants. It means to reject. I haven't selected you. I haven't chosen you. And so here we have this story. Genesis 25 through 36 tells the story of Jacob and Esau. Again, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac comes from them. Isaac marries Rebecca. Two twins, I guess that's what twins always are, just two of them, right? Are inside Rebecca, uh, Jacob and Esau. Esau is actually born first. Jacob is clasping at his heel as the story goes. The firstborn child, whether it was just moments or years, received the blessing. So Esau should have been, in their culture, the one who receives this blessing from God, and God brings his people and his blessing to the world through Esau's line. But for reasons we don't understand, and it's okay that we don't, God chooses, devotes himself to Jacob. He makes Jacob that instrument of blessing. Jacob, I have loved. Jacob, I have chosen. Esau, I have hated. Esau, I didn't choose. Maybe another word we could use is rejected. But I even use that cautiously because rejection is a word in our culture that has all kinds of negative connotations with it. Like it doesn't feel good. That's not what's intended here. God doesn't say, yeah, I, I don't like Esau. Not a very nice guy. I don't want him around. He's a little annoying, picks his nose. Like I don't want him anymore. That's not what God's doing. He said, I chose to make Jacob my instrument of blessing. I didn't choose Esau. Uh, maybe this will help. Uh, think of the, the, the job application process. Uh, a position is posted. You apply. And what? 30 to 300 other people apply for the same position. And what does the employer do? 
they choose one. And that one person gets brought in, they receive compensation and benefits, and they get training. They're selected. The company's devoted to them. Did the company say, yeah, you guys are worthless? No, they just didn't choose you. God chose Jacob. He didn't choose Esau. However, something crazy happens. Esau, who still has worshipped the God of his father Isaac, who is worshipping the God of his father Abraham, Yahweh, has an opportunity to continue to worship Yahweh, has an opportunity to continue to worship God. He can be devoted to the things that honor God. He can align himself with God's purposes, but we don't see that. Esau, in fact, turns from the ways of God. There's a moment as the nation of Israel, generations later, is moving through the wilderness. They need protection, and the best way to move is to go through the land of the Edomites, the land of Esau's ancestors. And, 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 and God uses the whole story. Hey, listen, like, like you are relatives, like way on down the line. You should just ask them for safe passage. And guess what the Edomites do? Uh-uh. They don't let them through. Like, like they actually are opposed to the work of God. And so God disciplines them. And God thwarts their purposes. I love what Job says. Job 42.2 says that no purpose of the Lord will be thwarted. That's just a cool word, thwarted. Like, you can't stop God, right? And the Edomites keep trying to. And so they're punished again and again and again for it. So why does God share all of this to draw his people to him? He says, listen, think back on your life. I want you to look back. I know that right now it's hard. You can't see. The, term, the turmoil is just too much. So look back, and I want you to see that I have been devoted to Jacob, your people, And in their minds, it's not written in Malachi, but in their minds, they would have gone back to all the stories. Um, Remember when there was a famine? (laughs) And, and, And I made it to where Joseph, through crazy circumstances, was in Egypt. He rose to prominence. And and guess what happened? Um, All all, all of Jacob's people, Israel, uh, got fed and, and were saved. And remember when there was that slavery thing in Egypt, like 400 years of oppression, and I raised up Moses and I rescued you? Remember the plagues? Remember the sea that you crossed? Remember wandering in the desert and there was food on the ground in the morning? Uh, There was manna there, flakes of dew like bread. And when that wasn't enough, I made quail be on the ground. And and when you were thirsty, I turned bitter water sweet. We struck a rock and, and water came out. Do you remember how many times I delivered you from your enemies? Even when you rebelled? God's calling them to look back and see, I have been devoted to you. I have loved Jacob. I didn't do that for anybody else on earth, but I did it for you. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, you want to know how have I loved you? Look back. How have I not loved you, Israel? I've been devoted to you. I chose you. Everything has worked in your favor. No one else's. When you and I get to the place where we are questioning, God, how have you loved us? We need to be able to stop in that moment, to to have the the sanity to say, okay, this looks horrible, this looks miserable, this is not what I envisioned, but let me look back. There's a reason why we say that hindsight is 20-20. Why? Because there are things that we can see more clearly in the past that we couldn't see in the moment. And so we look back. As we look back, we begin to see evidences of God's absolute devotion to us. We're not Israel, but who are we? 
were people who God sent his one and only son for. Because the story of Israel, this way that they're going to bless the whole earth, it's ultimately leading up to Jesus, who is in the line of Abraham, the line of David. Galatians 3.29 tells us that we are in Christ. We are Abraham's seed. We are heirs of his inheritance. Like, Jesus is the fullest expression of God's devotion and love towards humanity. If you're caught in that moment saying, God, why? Why are all these things happening? Why are those people I love hurting? Why is this going on in our world? We have to be able to take the pause and look back and say, but God, I know you're for me. Because you sent a Jesus, a Savior, to come and to make a way that this sinful, sorrowful world will not prevail for eternity. That it is just temporary. And these hardships, they feel like they'll go on forever, but they won't. They won't win. Because God has conquered sin eternally. The greatest, most fullest expression of God's devotion to you is Jesus. And sometimes that's the only thing you can see. Sometimes that's the only thing that you can cling to. We look to him. God says, I have loved you. I have loved you so much. I gave you my son to give you life, to fill you with his spirit so he could be with you in the midst of your hardship and guide you through the days ahead. I I did that for you. I am devoted to you. And every time we question, God, how have you loved us? We have to turn back to the cross. And God says, I have loved you this much. I was flying in March. And we were preparing to take off at the airport. And we've been sitting in the airport for a while. It was just raining outside. It was gloomy. It was cloudy. And uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes just gloomy, cloudy days just kind of, kind of have that effect on your life, right? Um, And so I'm sitting in the airport and I'm like, I just wish the sun would shine. We get in the airplane, we take off in the rain and we're climbing 10,000 feet, 15,000 feet, 20,000 feet. And what happens to the clouds? They start to go away. You start to see some brightness in them. By the time you're at 25,000 feet, 30,000 feet, guess what you see? The sun. And it just dawned on me in that moment that even though I see clouds, the sun's always shining. And there are times in our lives where all we feel is the rain, all we see are the clouds, all we feel is the wind and the hail. And we have to remember in those moments, the sun is still shining. I have loved you, declares the Lord. I've loved you. God chose you. God sent his only son to this earth. Yes, for all of humanity, but you have to pause for a moment and understand that that means you. You need to take a moment, you need to look in the mirror, and you need to say, God did that for me. He did. He loves you. He is devoted to you. And he knows that this world, as hard as it is, it is temporary. It will not triumph in the end. Sin will not win. Because Christ has given us the victory over those things. He has loved you. He has always loved you. The whole plan he instituted with Abraham is because you and I were on his mind along with the rest of humanity. 
one of the things that's really neat about Malachi is that in just 55 verses, that's how long the whole prophecy of Malachi is, is 55 verses. In just 55 verses, 24 times God is referred to by his name, the Lord of hosts. The word host has to do with waging war. It's this expression for God that says he is the Lord of angels armies, the Lord of heavens armies. It's this idea that our God is fighting for us. So when you face difficulty, when you face turmoil, when you face hardship, when you face all those things that make you question, God, do you love me? You have to know that the sun is shining, that God is fighting for you. And there will be a day, there will be a day when all the death and all the mourning and all the tears are no more. He has loved you. Father God, help us on this journey as we face our own doubts to know that you can be trusted, that you love us, that we can look back and see your faithfulness throughout the ages, even if we can't sense it in our own time. God, help us to know you love us. Help us to orient our lives around your purposes. Uh, Father, so that we don't doubt you to the point of compromise. Uh, Guide us in this life, Father, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.